It's such a strange American mythology to be like, you know, yeah, that's how you succeed by being the most special. And it's like, shouldn't I just be able to be completely unexceptional and still have dental care? <laughs> Sarah Marshall and Alex Steed host the Feelings Movie podcast, You Are Good, a show that invites guests to talk about films that have been meaningful in their lives. Then together, they discuss what the themes tell us about ourselves and our culture. Today, my good old buddies and I will talk about self-esteem from our own perspectives, share the movies that made us, and break down the myths we create as secular seekers. Oh, and of course, since Sarah is also the host of You're Wrong About, we find a way to connect the satanic panic right back to the self-esteem movement. Here we go. Let's get special. I am thrilled beyond belief to uh, invite two of our favorite people onto the show. That is Sarah Marshall and Alex Steed of the You Are Good podcast. And we know Sarah from You're Wrong About as well. So welcome to you both. And thank you for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You are wrong and good. <laughs> uh, so that's perfect to start. You guys host a, a feelings movie podcast, which is so fantastic. And I know our if our audience doesn't already listen, it's right up everybody's alley feelings and movies. But I want I was interested because we our topic today is sort of self esteem, the self help movement, things like that. And and your name is very evocative of this, this idea that we're trying to at, at our cores become good. So I'm interested in, in how did you land on that you are good as uh, as a podcast name. So we started off as Why Our Dads, and we were talking about movies where fatherhood was some kind of a theme and also talking about a lot of dad baggage. And at a certain point, I think late last spring, we decided that we had kind of done as much as we could with the concept and wanted to still stay a feelings movie podcast in a general sense and started looking for a name and the problem was that like every single possible film related pun was taken because the two main kinds of podcasts are people shouting at each other about movies and true crime and so we just went through I feel like we were working on this for a couple of weeks and then actually a listener had suggested that we call it you are good which was something we talked about in our Young Frankenstein episode, um, which was one of the first ones that we did. And that was the one that stuck and made the most sense. Alex, do you want to say anything Yeah, else? I mean, I think, I don't know. It, <laughs> I think I'll be able to speak to this more after we have a larger conversation about, you know, your, your previous episode on self-esteem and sort of the difference sure. between the projected reality of what self-esteem is and, and what it can or could mean. But I was struck in listening to your episode in hearing all these things that I forgot even happened at my school, like yes. I would have told you sort of straight up that these things didn't happen at my school until I heard you talk about specific things that brought back, brought back memories. And I think, you know, in one way or another, this title, You Are Good, even though this was clearly propagandized to us at like an educational level, I think like every element of being alive in 
whatever weird version of capitalism we're in is being told that we're not good at all on a regular basis and that Mm. that or being reminded that we're anxious and we have reasons to be anxious so buy something or click something or or divert your attention and so the whole you know, reason that you are good resonated with us is not reminding people in a superficial, like a warm and fuzzy uh, way, but in saying you are not bad in the thousand of different ways that you're going to be told today that you are. Yeah. And also it's a Mel Brooks homage. And that was really nice to have. Yes. I think you bring up a really good point, and that was something I was so nervous about on the episode because it's so hard to differentiate. Such an it's an abstract concept, you know, self esteem. It, it's just it's just something that we made up to try to quantify this this thing that we actually can't and don't fully understand what we're getting at here. But at the same time, the guy Vasco, who who kind of masterminded this whole self esteem project, also grew up being told he was bad as a Catholic kid. And so this was sort of his, I think, trauma reaction to that as it was for so many people. So I think even though the self-esteem movement had its like warm and fuzzy annoyances about it, it was coming out of an actual Mm -hmm. need. Yeah. And it's, I had the same experience as Alex listening to this episode where I was like, I know people talk about like the self-esteem movement being pushed on children, but I don't remember that happening to me. And then when you described the part where you have to go like throw a ball at each other (laughs) and like, yes. And like grudgingly come up with something positive to say about somebody. I was like, oh my God, I did that. We did that. Yeah. And it was weird. It was weird to think that it wasn't just this guy, the guy in my school who did his name was Pat Peluso. And like, I, I, and he, I just assumed he was like some weird figure that was like specific to our school. And like, he was just like a weird, you know, he was like the guidance counselor from Beavis and Butthead. He's sort of the very (laughs) same vibe. Um, And it was revealing in a big way to realize that that was happening everywhere. And, and yeah, I mean, I think our shows, your show, Chelsea, our show, Sarah's show, you're wrong about like, these are, these are all shows in one way or another that are meant to get to sort of some abstract approximation of truth in one way or another and so by no means do i think that like you know you are good is a a reverse prescription (laughs) to what we hear every day but i've related certainly to that origin story of the the self-esteem movement you know and i love everything that you said about it and i love sort of all the things that were revealed about it but i you know (laughs) it was interesting to hear that there was like such this like pro free market capitalist propulsion behind it and that that self-esteem could be used in that way because i i just see capitalism manifest itself every single day in a much more demeaning way or in a way that advocates for what you were talking about which is like this this very superficial almost sort of narcissistic idea of self-esteem so Mm. so yeah that's i mean that's the ecosystem in which we're (laughs) trying to exist (laughs) and try to do something interesting in the face of that. So since we remember it as being kids, right, it's certainly not in no way a movement limited 
toward children, the self-esteem movement and kind of all of the pop psychology movements with the goal of self-love or anything like that, which again, I believe to be very valuable, but at the same time, it's it's kind of convoluted with these other problematic elements that it's like picked up along, you know, along its journey through history. But I was, I'm curious if both of you have a relationship to self-help. Sarah, I'm eager to hear your answer to this. I actually, I don't know what your answer will be. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I feel like my first association with that is like the moment in When Harry Met Sally where Carrie Fisher is like, someone is looking at you in personal growth. <laughs> um, and like, I feel as if I grew up, you know, growing up and as being a little kid in the early 90s, like you definitely inherit an awareness of like what adults are kind of dragging each other about at the time. And I think one of them was the prevalence of self-help books and like the, what seemed like an extremely flourishing industry in the nineties. And I think is now in different ways, but like the self-help book I think was so huge. I feel as if I don't personally have as much of a relationship with that because I haven't tried to self-help through a book in my life really but I also feel like I'm trying in my like fear of therapy in my adult life I've like tried to do like my own personal self-help course and like teach myself how to have self-esteem is like one of the big things in that yeah but I feel as if the concept of self-help was like really kind of mocked and stigmatized in the 90s which I can see is like a reasonable and meaningful backlash against this really kind of, you know, relentless commercialization of something that had plenty of good ideas, I think, at its core, but was being used as a cure for everything. And I feel like I grew up with the sense that, like, the adults running the country at the time were, like, both deeply addicted to this industry and also found it very embarrassing. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I <laughs> so speaking of Pat Palooza, I hope he listens to this episode. <laughs> Hi, Pat. So this guy, this guy came into our classroom and he did these exercises. Like this is the only place like in my experience, I can acutely say like, this is where this practice or ideology was kind of like overtly occurring in my school As he came in, I think like when we were in the fourth or fifth grade, he did these exercises with the koosh ball. He did the, like, he did that whole thing. And then he kind of like, I don't know if he was a, I don't know what he was like. I don't know if he was a counselor or whatever, but he like picked people to have like a sort of a separate group with those people that was like kind of like a round table therapy group in one way or another. And I think it was like aimed at, at addressing their self-esteem. Like I'm realizing in retrospect, that's what it was. And I didn't get picked. And I'm positive that set me up for being counter to everything Pat Palooza <laughs> represented for like the rest of my life. Pat Palooza was a very <laughs> earnest name for, I assume, a very earnest person. Yeah. It sure is. Pat, you really did some damage unintentionally. But I, I remember like already being skeptical of that because I was cynical going back to like seven or eight um, but I was especially skeptical after so so and then when like capital S capital H self-help that Sarah is talking about when those books came out I immediately was extraordinarily skeptical of them and I have like one overt self-help book which is by that like four hour work week guy. And it's like, it's like, it's called tools for Titans. And I'm really embarrassed that I own it. But <laughs> you know, Chelsea, cause we, we talk about this a, a lot. Like I go about a self-help journey without any books that are specific to self-help, like through, you know, through whatever, through like Eastern perspective and meditation and 
you know, books about mythology and books about, you know, fairy tales and, and children's stories and archetypes and all that. Like I am certainly, <laughs> you know, I'm certainly on the path without buying anything that subscribes overtly to the genre, but absolutely, you know, dabbles with the genre. I'm, I'm going about it like the co most cowardly way possible. <laughs> you, you want like the, the, you want the more quality content that the other content is kind of ripping off the centuries old. Content. Yeah. Well, I feel like it's all in one way or another, usually going back to Buddha. Hmm. <laughs> so, but it's like, how do we sell the Buddha? How do we make the Buddha sexy? <laughs> exactly. So I'm like, I'll just go straight there. Thank you. <laughs> or to Young. It's all like Young or Buddha. And so I'm, I, I'll just go straight to the I know, I feel like Carl Young's always the one I go back to for better, for worse. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Thank you, Carl. Carl. You weird, weird motherfucker. <laughs> you weird dude. <laughs> well, you know, I'm thinking of like, because I guess self-help to me is like maybe a broader ca category than it is to you guys. Because mm -hmm. I'm thinking of like, Eckhart Tolle like did you guys ever read any Eckhart Tolle no and no. I feel like I definitely I always have peripherally known people who were like Tolle fans and I remember they always like it was like you know like a girl in one of my lecture classes who wore earrings that she made herself that were like really thin slices of <laughs> oranges that she then laminated or something <laughs> not laminating like something it was really pretty and I was just even and I'm a pretty sincere person but I remember just being like I'm never going to be that sincere like I guess I know that <laughs> oh that's so good that's such, that's such a Sarah. That's such a good differentiator that I never even realized that I I <laughs> felt about it. Is like I've always thought Tully was a charlatan in one way or another because it feels like it feels like this like simulacrum of sincerity or like this project. Oh, a hundred percent. Right, like a projection of like it. It feels like it's gone from like being like very very sincere to being like look at how sincere I'm being. And I'd never. And I'm not talking about that girl yeah. that you went to school with. But some of the other girls. <laughs> a person who could get tricked by that. Right, and like what. And then I guess like the other big association I have more recently is with The Secret, which I feel like yeah. <laughs> distills this concept to an adder so pure that like it's hard not to see what a lot of these this other bibliography has been about the whole time, but maybe less overtly, which is just like the prosperity gospel for secular people. Absolutely. Oh, wow. Yeah. What was your relationship with Tolle, Chelsea? Sorry if we just shat, shat on you. <laughs> oh, shit, no. No, 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 no. Oh, my God. No, 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 no. So my my dad uh, is like a new age Gnostic kind of person. That was like the, the mm. realm in which my... I had no religion in my family. That was like the closest I came to religion was like a very new age religion. And so he, even to this day, buys his books, Eckhart Tolle's books, anytime he finds them at the thrift store and just gives them away, right? So this is a very like canon. This is like canon in my life is Eckhart Tolle. But the loss of the ego is sort of his whole thing is your ego is the the negative internal voice um, and, and finding your true self underneath that, which is a great message. Totally get it. It's, it's good. It's been very helpful to me. But like just watching someone claim to have no ego, it's like if you don't have an ego, you don't have a personality. And also, if you all. didn't have an ego, like, would you be saying 
that to people? You would think not. You would think, but he he's just here to help, you know? He's just here and to this help. Is, this is why I feel like I take the coward's way out because like, I feel like in that same category, but I can't quite explain what's different is like Thich Nhat Hanh, who is... You know, in a in, an amazing Eastern Buddhist monk um, has, is still alive. Some is like a hundred and seventy years old and still alive somehow. Um, not not really that old, but very old, and and is, is essentially kind of preaching the same thing. Though I always get the sense is like not saying that they've achieved some other plane or they've they've like achieved some great ego egoless accomplishment in a way that makes me continue to trust them like they have some self-awareness of being a person with an ego and keep returning to that and for some reason i feel like that's a person who you know isn't smiling in my face with their hand on my wallet at the same time gently mugging you <laughs> yes 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 so kind you ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. So what you're talking about, Alex, is, as you mentioned, something we talk about a lot, which is our different spiritual journeys, whatever you want to call it. I don't think that's what I would call mine necessarily anymore, but sort of how we make sense of reality and uh, especially through myth is mm. something we're both interested in. And to bring up a quote from the episode again that was so cool from John Hewitt, who's a social scientist, he said, in this myth of self-esteem, it's not a story of ancient heroes and military victories, but contemporary tales in which men and women overcome mainly psychological obstacles to success and happiness. So I think it's 
interesting to think about what is our myth now in a secular society that doesn't have a formal religious structure. So Alex, would you want to talk about some of your thoughts you've been having on that lately? Um, sure. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I have a tidy series of thoughts, as you know, anytime something hits me that I'm like, I should tell Chelsea about this. It's like at least 2000 words. <laughs> if not more. So it's I'm constantly just trying to sort through what I feel. But like, I don't, I don't know, like, I, I increasingly get the sense that outside of something that is manufactured by, you know, capitalist interest, we have virtually no myth or no, no, no series of, of narratives that are resonant in a deeper way to, to most people. And I feel like that actually is what explains a lot. It's what explains like a particularly either nihilist or narcissistic bent among many folks. Uh, so yeah, I, I increasingly feel like there is no necessarily unified myth and i think that there's there's a lot of good things that come out of that and there are a lot of bad things that come out of that because unified myths often are exclusionary in one way or another and that that creates its own series of problems but then things can become extremely relativist you know and on and on so whenever i'm looking into mythologies that predate the 20th and 21st century. I'm just trying to look at what people tap into in a more general resonant way that carries on sort of generation to generation and era to era. And that is what I get excited about. That's like why I like, you know, non-branded children's stories. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think there's like, there are these, these archetypes and psychologies and, and various things that resonate with humans generally that when we're able to tap into them without, you know, kind of a brand or a specific series of personalities imposed onto it, you know, there's a reason why we tell the same stories in one way or another over and over, over the, the course of years. But I think that that lack of myth and that, that sort of absolute secularism and that eschewing of mythology in favor of, you know, what is quote rational and what is quote exclusively scientific. Again, there's a lot of good stuff that comes out of that, but then there's a lot of people going, well, what the fuck is the point then? And mm -hmm. that's what I'm constantly trying to figure out. And I know that that's what you're constantly trying to figure out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Sarah, do you have anything you want to say about this? Yeah, I mean, the idea that in America specifically, and again, that's the only country I really know anything about. Um, so it's the only one I can speak to that we don't have non branded mythology or non monetized mythology, like, that hadn't occurred to me before, but it feels alarmingly true. And it reminds me of the time that I went to uh, Disney World for the first time as an adult, which Chelsea, we've talked about Disney on your show as well, mm -hmm. um, which was a great joy to me. And I both love and hate Disney World so incredibly much, which I feel like is just, you know, it, those emotions are like equally balanced. Like, I'm so happy the Enchanted Tiki Room exists. And also, it's very weird to realize that, like, I don't know, for me, kind of like, this is exemplified really well by Disney now owning Star Wars, where like, Star Wars is such secular American mythology. And like, literally, to the extent that George Lucas, like, had Joseph Campbell teach him how mythology works, hmm. so that he could then hmm. do that very Ooh. successfully, at least the first time out. <laughs> 
And, um, you know, we talk a lot about the media landscape that we inevitably end up with when a handful of corporations control almost all of the information and narrative that we are able to receive as consumers. But like talking about the fact that like Disney by itself really controls a lot of the what I would think you can only accurately call mythology that people live their lives by and learn by and think about. And I remember also at the time thinking about the messages of Disney Renaissance movies that I grew up with and like, you know, just a lot of stories for kids, which is still like, this is kind of a hot button thing for me now where like, if there's a kid's movie where the message is like, believe in yourself, just believe in yourself. And it's like, okay, (laughs) but like, what are you doing? What are you believing that you need to be able to do? And like, is it a good thing that you're trying to do? Because like, the concept that you talk about in your episode about like, the idea of giving kids mirrors or whatever, like, you know, (laughs) I'm thinking of the scene in The Big Lebowski as well, but mirrors that say something like this is one of the most special people or something. It's like the concept of most special feels so indicative of like, I don't know, like how I think self-esteem is a really positive concept, but like it can't fix systemic problems by itself. And also when it gets married to sort of the brain rotted uh, ideology of American capitalism, it's like, it's not enough to be special. You have to be the most special (laughs) and all of the kids have to be the most special at once. And I think that's why I keep sort of driving back to, you know, capitalism as ideology is that, again, the entire basis of the myth around just selling shit is you need 1% of everything that is on offer and you don't even really need that. And the only way to create the impression that you need it is to suggest you'll be inferior without it. So this whole idea of saying like, you are special, you are the most special, you are the most special, um, you know that's not true. You know that will never be true deep down inside. And so like every time you feel like you're slipping by not living up to that potential, that the, that you're failing your highest possible realized potential and you get a little anxious about it you know the the right ad pops up and you're able to buy something that at the very least gives you a pass until the next time you feel that way (laughs) so i see it serving you know i i do think that there is a mythology it's just not I guess like all mythology in one way or another, it's it's rooted in a particular anxiety and it's it's highly, highly, highly transactional. And you've talked about capitalism a lot. And I think really another important thing that I've learned from making the show is that so much of our idea of individuality was constructed again by like one charismatic person, Edward Bernays, that we talk about in our influencers episode, who really started selling everybody on in the 20s, like, be an individual, show yourself through the products that you own, like smoke cigarettes, like a cool feminist, you know, like plant, like planting people and in in crowds to make it look like they were actually smoking as feminists, but they were just rich debutantes and kind of crafting this whole world around like the cult of individuality. And that was coming at a really, you know, just like really interesting time in history that then kind of blossom helped blossom this uh cap the capitalist version of the new age i think <laughs> of this this individual search because that wasn't a thing before right i mean it wasn't like nobody thought about themselves as a personality really until 
even the 1920s when we started having movies and we could see ourselves reflected back in in the media in a new way. And I just think uh, it's this individuality thing is such an important part of being an American. And it comes at you from every direction, conservative and mm. liberal and capitalist and, you know, and even in our own communities as, as um, whatever we identify as, there's something about identity that is so integral to America. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's this idea in America too that like individualism is your consolation prize for the economy trying to murder you all the time. <laughs> and it's born of alienation, right? Like the the whole idea, like the the prequel to that influencers piece. I love I love that episode of yours, but the, the prequel is like, why do brands exist? Right. And it's because when we went into a place where like you you know, when your neighbor wasn't the only person you were getting um, oatmeal from and suddenly it was mass produced, there needed to be a picture of someone who looked trustworthy on the on the bag. And everybody mm -hmm. loves Quakers. It's one right, of America's right. dominant religions. It's very confusing branding. I do like Quakers. We do. Yeah, <laughs> I do like them. I'm it a is very confusing. But like the, the it it's born of this shift that's happening when when we're you know in sort of the middle of industrialization and we're getting pulled out of these smaller communities that are thinking communally and we're we're moving towards a place where we're no longer part of these organisms that we can identify or that we can sort of like name all the individuals in that community anymore and so we're increasingly realizing that we're smaller and what comes with that is this idea that we have to establish some sort of identity to keep ourselves company hmm. it reminds me we you know in our one of our first episodes we did poison halloween candy and kind of the history of candy candy panics and uh <laughs> what you're talking about is the distancing of ourselves from our communities has also led to so many panics in terms of like food being contaminated yeah. mm. and uh you know man that anxiety is so real it actually manifested in full-blown hysterias and uh I think on that note, I would love to shift a little bit to thinking about the misleading that happened with the self-esteem movement. And um, Sarah, as a fellow, I don't know, debunker, <laughs> I don't think that's what we do, but as a fellow person who investigates lies told by mm. culture, is there anything that the self-esteem movement kind of reminded you of? I mean, I feel as if the examples are so many that I'm having a hard time <laughs> even like picking some out. But I mean, actually, this feels to me reminiscent of the satanic panic itself as well, which is like, you know, the the origin of our bond is like shared satanic panic interest, <laughs> which is, you know, that's, that's how you find your people and being fascinated by miscarriages of justice, I think. Sarah, you were my first. I just want you to know, I don't think that I had met anybody before we met all the, like a few years ago that really knew because our culture hadn't really been talking about it too much until more recently. Yeah. But I just wanted you to know you were my first and it brought my heart great comfort. I remember meeting you at AWP and I was talking about Michelle Remembers and I was like gearing up to like explain what that is. And you were like, oh, I have experienced <laughs> that book and like all of its lunacy. And I was like, thank God, because it felt like it was this weird country that I'd been to that nobody else had heard of. He would not. It's like he, such an embarrassment of um, riches of baffling and horrifying things. 
and a true minefield mm-hmm. too. You're like, I don't know how I'm going to talk yeah. about this to just anybody. Right. You're like, what? <laughs> how do I begin? Yeah. And so I, and I feel like the satanic panic, it feels like these seem to me like they're both movements that are born out of some kind of understanding and some kind of true understanding that like, it's hard to be a kid in America, which like, yes. And so in the eighties, like these both seem like fundamentally reasonable ideas. Like it's bad for children to be sexually abused, which was like an under understood concept at the time. And kids should love themselves or appreciate themselves. And that then gets turned into, you know, in the case of the satanic panic, a way to further marginalize queer people and to let uh, (laughs) the police railroad innocent bystanders into going to prison for a very long time, some of whom are still there. And also to kind of take a realization that like childhood sexual abuse is a real and endemic problem and then be like, but we're not going to be talking about like how this could be happening because maybe people in uh, unsafe family situations can't leave or take the kids because there aren't adequate services to provide for children if the abusive party in the family is also providing financial support. Like, we don't want to undermine the American family. We don't want to have a welfare state, which, of course, you know, you had uh, dear old Ronald mm-hmm. Reagan talking about in your episode about this. And I feel like the satanic panic, you know, among the many things that it did kind of is doing what you're talking about the self-esteem movement doing, which is saying like, we're noticing all these problems. And so we figured out a way to address them that doesn't cost very much money and that places all the blame or all the agency within the individual Mm. in a, you know, in a way that really misses the point. Man, you're like making me think right now, what is the opposite? You know what? It's not opposite. It's like, what is a moral panic when it's doing the same thing, but now we can call it like a moral calming, right? Because it's like (laughs) you panic and the panic then makes you ignore systemic issues in, you know, in honor of serving a more interesting, fun, you know, we'll say fun when we mean sensational or exciting. And then, you know, one that places the onus back on the individual or on something so crazy that we can't possibly combat it with these sorts of systemic changes but the moral calming is like okay we're all gonna calm down because we don't have to worry about these systemic issues because all we have to do is believe in ourselves and do these so it feels like they're very like you said they're very uh they're bedfellows yeah and they and of course they both are products of the 80s um and it it like feels very meaningful that they really resonate with the greed is good era which i don't think we've you know ever really woken up from uh, Miranda popped into the chat here to call it national self-soothing, which I also <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah, or like moral anesthesia, maybe. Yeah, that's a good one, too. That's like the big thing that's missing that that I hear is it's not necessarily missing, but like it's prescriptive, right? Like it, we we would call it national self-soothing. I think if like it, it there were a national effort to make that happen, but like really like what's happening is and this is is probably like the most political i'll ever get in in a in a podcast or like most overtly political i'll get is like that all still 
kind of suggests that we live in an actual democracy, right? Like <laughs> that, that, that the country isn't just run by like billionaires and the uber wealthy who ultimately in one way or another set agendas as a form of reminding everyone that it's like, you're only going to get so much and you'll be lucky if you get it. So here is a lie that you can hopefully be, you know, soothed by in one way or another, because if you really were to pay attention to how fucked up things are, we're going to get in trouble. Right. And like the way to succeed is by fucking a hundred other people and like living on top of their prone bodies and mm. and it's yeah it's so it's such a strange american mythology to be like you know yeah that's how you succeed by being the most special and it's like okay but like in a country with this many people there have to be unspecial people and like don't they have rights shouldn't i just be yes. able to be like completely uh unexceptional and still have dental care <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Moving on to kind of what you guys do uh, at, over at You Are Good, Feeling Yag. Smoothies. <laughs> over at Yag. <laughs> you ready? What movie, right? If we're talking about self-esteem, but we're talking about it in the way that we value it, what childhood movie helped your sense of self and helped you feel seen like growing mm. up? We, we'll count it through teendom, but what movie did you watch kind of again and again that that provided you with with something soothing oh what a great question i think like labyrinth is the first one that comes to mind because like and that's a childhood through adolescence movie and i you know it's got a heroine who's quite self-possessed uh, which is always something interesting to try and emulate especially when for me, I definitely got the message that like self-possession in young girls is kind of like dangerous and tends to piss people off. And so the idea of a fantasy realm where you can actually have that was very exciting. I'm actually I'm going to say too, Labyrinth and um, Adventures in Babysitting, which are almost the same movie, except Adventures in Babysitting doesn't have like a sexually menacing anti-hero anywhere in it really although it should and <laughs> it's the city of chicago the right, city of chicago is. is the section <laughs> you're right the, it is the city like it's instead of david bowie you have chicago itself and how the answer to your plight is to realize that like the answers are inside of you you have no power over me i'm still in control here i'm still the babysitter <laughs> and yeah and just i don't know and i feel like labyrinth really Labyrinth does a thing that I don't really have language for, but I feel like probably exists somewhere out there of like giving you what you think you want or what you kind of want and then letting you have the wish fulfillment of it in order to kind of cathartically realize that it's not what's going to be good for you in the long term, which in this case is having like a controlling older goblin boyfriend. <laughs> it's an important lesson to learn as a child. I it think. is. I mean, if not for that movie, I would be married to a goblin right now doing my goblin baby's laundry. <laughs> oh How about you, Alex? Um, mine is, this is, I mean, this is such a cliche. So I have like, I have like a cliche one and then I have one that I got into when I was a little bit older. And my cliche one is just the Goonies, you know, cause it's like, I mean, it's so on the nose. It's like, 
kids are in trouble because developers are going to ruin their lives. Kids find treasure and find themselves and then fuck the developers. And that meant a lot to me. Like just seeing kids, we talk so much about this in the show is like movies about like boys that are friends in one way or another. Obviously movies that are girls, girls that are friends as well, but like like movies that were kids are friends. Like there's a real in- interesting like innocence to these sorts of movies where the protagonist finds some sort of empowerment through a plight and then come out at them. Like it feels like a fairy tale and I like that a whole lot. And then later in my it must have been in my early teens. I must have been 12 or 13. There's a movie called Manny and Low, which is Scarlett Johansson's first movie. It came out in like the mid 90s. And it's just like about these two runaways who leave their their foster home and one of them gets pregnant and they, they are saved by Mary Kay Place, who I love so much. But like I... I just remember one of the characters, like the character that gets pregnant is just not likable, but is still, again, like worthy of this adult's love. And I found that to be, I don't know, there was, it was extremely redeeming. It's like what Sarah was saying earlier, where it's like, all of us can't be winners, but for the ones who are not necessarily winners, don't we deserve something too? Um, This movie answered that for me in a big, big way. And that felt extremely soothing. And I watched it a lot. So much in my high school experience, like every high schooler realizes the hypocrisy in one way or another. But like I, I had like, I think like over the course of like one or two years, like four teachers got in trouble for basically like, like some sort of sexual impropriety with students. And, and I just remember like constantly being like, once that clicked and then like, you know, school Columbine happened when I was 16 and just like, it felt like, and that my mom worked for the Catholic church around this time. Like all these things were happening where I was like, all of the people who are telling me how to be, don't have any ground to stand on. And it felt like it happened real hard, real fast that it clicked, you know, it clicked. So like the idea that anyone could be talking about like the import of self-esteem in one way or another, when I was a teenager, like I had the Daria response and thank God, like Daria was on TV at that time because it gave me someone to relate with. And the way that that like manifested later that I felt vindicated by was in Donnie Darko, right? Where like, where I, who is like, who is that woman to Donnie outside of like his, his sister's dance instructor? Like, is she a guidance counselor? But they, they basically talk about, the, you know, the spectrum of love and fear and all of your responses are either on the love end or the fear end. Um, um, and I, and, you know, Donnie sort of calls, calls that out. And I remember just being like, I remember that feeling again, it's like another pretty on the nose thing, but just it really exemplifying this feeling that I had that I never really put into words, which was like, all of these people who are telling me how to be and how to be well and how to be measured and how to feel good, just have no authority to do so. <laughs> yeah. What's going on in your yeah, life? Exactly. Exactly. And it was just seeing this, like this, this person who in that movie universe was doing the same. I was like, Oh, thank God. Other people feel this way. What was yours, Chelsea? Thank you for asking. Um, <laughs> I did want to talk about Thank it. Um, now and then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love now and then. <laughs> there's something about that. It's a hero's journey, but in a group. And there's just no other time in your life, I don't think, where you have the same feeling of 
of possibility with your friends like that. And it's kind of the same in it, <laughs> but in it, it's like yeah. flipped on its head, right? And it's stand like the, by me too. And stand by me. Yeah. Like the darkness of, of that as well. And kind of discovering the darkness of being a young person who's coming into their adolescent yeah. years, all the things that start to happen. Very queer movie too. Yeah. Did you guys know that that she went on, the person who did it, I, Marlene King, went on to do Pretty Little Liars? No. Isn't that weird? No, that's so great. It's so funny that when you said, when I was talking about like movies about, you know, like groups of boys and then movies about groups of girls, I was thinking explicitly about now and then. When I bet. You, <laughs> so yep. I like, you mean yeah. girls stand by me? Yes, girls girl stand by me. <laughs> I love any movie and I love movies that commit this sin, not a sin, because like you had, we need some of them, but I, I think it goes overboard in terms of ratios. But like, I love movies where we get girls that are friends without the movie deciding that it's like this is now too much friendship and <laughs> they're gonna start doing dark magic or crime or whatever and i love those movies too and of course i'm okay. specifically referring to the craft and hustlers which i watched last night and which always makes me cry because it dares to have the central relationship be between two women and the men are just like totally at the periphery just a succession of that fucking guys mm. For our wrap up here, I think it's interesting that both of you at different points, I think today, have mentioned the embarrassment <laughs> around the idea of self-help, right? And I mean self-help in a broad, the broadest sense of the term right now. So like, what makes us feel embarrassed, do you guys think, in terms of as, as ubiquitous as the self-esteem movement and, and these self-help movements and sort of the ability for us to feel comfortable going to therapy, feel comfortable even going on medication, and all the ways that we address all of us share different mental health issues. I think that's yeah, obvious sure by now. Do. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I guess I'm interested in the embarrassment factor that still exists around this this very broad sense of finding ways to feel peace, I feel is almost like the the very bottom of this. Well, I, I see. So for me, it's two answers. And one answer I didn't even know until relatively recently. But like the, the biggest answer for me or the one that immediately comes to me is that I, I don't like being duped. You know, I don't like something feeling like too easy or on the nose an answer. And that has a lot to do with like my my Calvinist New England background, I think. And so like usually when I look at a self-help book that's marketed as a self-help book, I get the sense that there's a duping that's happening in one way or another, or there's some sort of manipulation. And I, I, that's not necessarily always a fair characterization, but that's like kind of what gives me the no feeling. And that's what makes me embarrassed about, about it. It's not the pursuit. I think the pursuit is extremely important. And I think like I've pursued all sorts of fucking wacky manifestations of, of, of my path and my journey. So I have no, it's not to, say negative things about anyone who is on a journey and and what that journey looks like it's it's largely about the industry that i'm skeptical of but the other thing like this the the social element that i hadn't really thought of because like you know i think we do live in this unique time and there's some pluses and minuses to the mechanics of it but like there we live in a unique time where we can talk relatively openly about the different manifestations of mental health issues that that we have again i think like the ways that it's categorized the ways that it happens on social media there's like a lot of potentially very problematic elements of that 
but it's great that we can speak openly about it. I've was born in 1983. So like there's, there's at the very least, even though it was a very base conversation in the eighties, that conversation has been happening publicly in one way or another. It's just matured. I have been reading recently because I have this podcast called Nashville Demystified, which is about like the sort of the secret histories of Nashville and understanding more how much mental health, mental ailment, basically like frailties of the mind, how that was used in one way or another in moral crusades, particularly against like shutting down houses of prostitution or like stealing children from women uh, and unwed mothers and just doing like all of these, you know, interesting, terrible, horrendous phenomena that happened in the early 1900s to the mid 1900s and have continued to have in one way or another since were all done under the guise of there was someone who had some mental purity and there were a lot of people who had deficiencies and those mm. people with deficiencies couldn't be trusted to do anything. And I increasingly realize how just baked into our culture that is, even in ways that I don't see. And I'm a person who talks about how acutely fucked up I am all the time. Uh, so, so I think that there's almost like a cultural shame where it's like, if I'm honest about this, like someone's going to steal my baby. Cause like, that's a literal thing that has happened or sterilize me. So I can never have any babies. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. So I think that there's just like the anti charlatanism piece, but then there's also just the like, it's scary to talk about this because I know someone is going to use this against me in a horrendous way, probably. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that connects with my answer, which I feel like, um, Chelsea, when you mentioned this episode topic, I asked you if you were going to include the Daria episode self-esteemsters, which I was so happy to hear in, in the mix. Um, yeah, that and... was totally dedicated to you. <laughs> oh, that makes me so happy. Yeah. And I feel like Daria, like, you know, nailed many things that felt, you know, to me made that show really special that I feel like other media that I had access to, at least in kind of middle school age, like wasn't putting its finger on. And one of the things it had, and that I think we now have in Bob's Burgers and probably a lot of other stuff I don't know about is like the unbelievably cringy and basically out for himself guidance counselor, who's like fully high on his own supply and like believes that he's helping these kids, but is really just trying to win a conflicty or whatever. I think the guy on Daria was a more pure hearted, but um, and I feel like like that was so cathartic for me as a tween because I was always the kid who was getting sent to the guidance counselor in elementary school. And it was because I had rough edges and I didn't know how to socialize. And it always felt punitive. And it always had this air of like, why can't you be normal? And if you if we're going to work on your self-esteem, it's so that we can like get you to take two self-esteems and be normal in the morning. The thing of being a kid who's at least trying to think critically about stuff and doesn't want to be duped and sees the world as I did as full of adults who are trying to dupe you to achieve their own ends all the time and having guidance counselors seeming to fall into that because I always felt like you don't want to help me you just want me to not cause problems for you like I'm just supposed to fall in line and if not actually feel better than to at least give a reasonable impression of somebody who is. And I think that that kind of poisoned the well for me of trying to work on myself because it made it into something that I had to do for other people. And really, I think it was only in adulthood that I began to figure out and still am figuring out like that it actually can be for me. And it's not just something that I'm doing for the convenience of uh, 
of the grownups in charge of me. And I mean, isn't that that was something we didn't include in our episode, but how psychologists tend to think that our obsession with self-esteem is more our parental slash authority figures obsession with our self-esteem and how that then reflects back on right. them. It's like, well, your kid is scoring a seven on the self-esteem barometer and it should be a nine. So are you working too much or what? <laughs> <laughs> the embarrassment's going to come when you're doing something so vulnerable. And like you said, Alex, I think it's just like, I was duped a lot. I was duped a lot, I feel like, by different self-help books because I was just so desperate, you know, just support groups, all kinds of stuff that wasn't necessarily a dupe and added a little bit, right? Because each one of these things, no matter how dupey they might be, <laughs> contains some kernel of truth. I feel like, I mean, just listening to your episode and having this conversation today, this like brings me back to what I feel like is one of the to me, one of the core things about trying to debunk as kind of the thing that you do for the public, which is that like, I think a lot of these ideas, at least in the United States that we get carried away with, like they're not wrong, or they're not entirely wrong. Like, I think there's pretty much always some kind of germ of truth to it. But it's like, we take something that could be a solution to certain problems in certain contexts. And we're like, great, let's just stick this bandaid on this leaky dam and be done for the day. And I feel like it's you know, you can debunk a concept without throwing away the, you know, the idea that there's any truth at all that originally got people excited about it. I think it's like, it's not the tool, it's the way that we're using it a lot of the time. And it's it, it gets to the heart of this other part of this that is about kind of identifying in this totality. Like, I have high or low self-esteem. Like, it, it's a, some kind of weird totality. And your show is, it's not you're wrong, it's you're wrong about, <laughs> right? So it's sort of this thing of, like, one aspect is wrong, you know? Like, one part of this thing that you think you know <laughs> is wrong. Didn't you say when we got on, you're good and yeah. wrong? We're all good and we're all wrong. <laughs> and how. <laughs> Well, thank you so much to both of you for coming on. It's always such a joy to talk to you guys on air or off. Oh, we love you so much. This is so great. Thank you, Chelsea. This was American Hysteria. If you need more self-esteem or you just want to get all the hottest dirt on Ayn Rand and Nathaniel Brandon's polyamorous, volatile relationship, well, boy, do I have a talk show for you. Just become a patron at patreon.com slash American Hysteria to get access to Hysteria Home Companion, where producer Miranda and I dive into all the juiciest stuff from the cutting room floor. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria, and that episode will be up next Monday. Find You Are Good on Twitter and Instagram at YouAreGoodPod. Find Alex on Twitter at AlexSteed and on Instagram at KnackFactory. And find Sarah on Twitter at Remember underscore Sarah. This episode was hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith, sound by ClearCommo Studios, and produced by Miranda Zickler. Thanks, as always, for listening, and heads up, catch this koosh ball. Here comes my compliment. You're making it through this life one way or another, and, uh, and that's something to celebrate. Oh, and I do really like your Tiny Tunes high top sneakers.
Friends, hello. I'm Mike Rignetta, the host of Never Post, a new and independent news podcast about and for the internet. In addition to bringing you the latest in current events, we try to figure out why the internet and the world because of the internet is the way it is. How did influencers destroy tween fashion? What is posting disease and how do you ensure you don't catch it? From what device must one send important emails? We talk about what's going on online and ask together why. Why are we like this? Find Never Post wherever you get your podcasts.